When it's on mute, it doesn't work as well. <laughs> Always true. Uh, I think we call it crisp, right? When our skin hurts. Isn't that what we refer to crisp here in Minnesota? I'd like to invite all of you to turn to our passage today that is a part of our Hope Rising series. As you're on your way there, I just want to say, I, I didn't say, yes, I'm rooting for Patrick Mahomes because I'm really just rooting against Tom Brady. Like, I think if you'd said that, half of us would have said, yes! Maybe that's mean-spirited. First uh, Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 3, verse 7 today. It's a passage about how we respond to authorities in our life with a particular focus on how we are to respond to bad authorities in our life. We're followers of Jesus who have our hope in him. And so the way that we respond to authorities, even bad authorities, is to be totally different than the way the world responds to authorities, even bad authorities. And so how does God want us to deal with it when our authorities in home, the workplace, church, the government are godless, dumb, or cruel? Anyone ever put up with authorities like that? I know I, you just sat down, but I, I would like to ask all of you to stand for the reading of God's word together and let's read our passage beginning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You may be seated. I have a clarification and a warning for the sermon today. The clarification is this. Because I want us to see the big movement across all three of these passages about how the believer is supposed to respond to authority, I won't be able to dig into all of the details and every question that these passages bring up. This is frustrating for me, but I'm going to trust that you can consult your very good study Bible and have those questions answered as you spend some time in that study Bible. I also want to give you a link to a sermon that I did about 11 months ago in which I did dig into some of the more detail of these issues that we're dealing with today. Uh, I got into the weeds a little more about husbands and wives and how the Bible calls them to relate to each other, masters and servants, and what servitude looked like in the Roman Empire. And if you want more detail on that, that link will bring you to a sermon that will get you into a little more detail that we're not going to be able to cover today. But today we're going to zoom up to about 10,000 feet, and we are going to look across all three of these settings at the big picture of God's call to how we are supposed to respond to authority as his followers. I also want to issue a warning for our hearts as we go through this passage. Because this passage is all about my responsibility to authority as one under authority. And because I have a sinful and rebellious heart, it is going to constantly want to argue with this passage. And say things like, but shouldn't the authorities on all of these different levels do better? Can't, can't they do better? Aren't they supposed to do better? There is something wicked in me that wants to immediately take the focus off of whatever I have in my own eye and put it on what other people have in their eye. And so as I read through a passage like this, I immediately want to say, well, the authorities, they stink. Shouldn't they do better? And the answer to that is yes, on every level. Whether we're talking about government or church or home or work, yes, the authorities should do better. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about those of us who are under authority and what God's call is in our life. And as we focus on that in this passage, we see a couple of themes that run across all three settings that we looked at. The first is that we are to be subject to authority. Be subject to authority in government, verse 13. Be subject to authority in the workplace, verse 18. Be subject to authority in the home, chapter 3, verse 1. What does it mean to be subject? Some of your Bibles have the word submit to, right? Submit rather than be subject. Because the Greek word upatasso is most often translated submit. It means to submit or give way. When I was little... I often wanted to go outside and play, but my mom would say to me, Matt, your room is a sty. I want you to go in there and not come out until it's clean. But, but I wanted to go outside. But she wanted me to go in the room and clean. What would I do? I would be subject to my mom, submit to her, and go in and clean my room. Now, if my mom is watching right now, she's like, 
I, re I remember that differently. <laughs> huh, did you really? But, but that's God's call for us when it comes to the human authorities in our life. We're to be subject, to submit, to give way to them. The second thing we see across all three of these passages is that we are to honor and respect the human authorities in our life. Honor the emperor. Submit to the master with all respect. Live with your husband in a respectful conduct. Believers are to treat authority in their life, human authority, with honor and respect. What does that look like? I think Titus chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 does a wonderful job of illustrating what honor and respect for authorities looks like. It starts with uh, government authorities, but it really gives us a wonderful picture of honor and respect for any authority in our life when it says, Paul says to Timothy, remind the people, remind believers to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle toward everyone. What does it look like for a Christian to treat human authorities with honor and respect? It means to submit to them, to obey them, to do good to them and never slander them, to speak words that promote peace with them, and to always be gentle and considerate towards them. That's a great picture of what it means to honor and respect our authorities. How's the American church doing with that? We're to treat authority with honor and respect. We're to submit to them and treat them with honor and respect. Now, my rebellious heart immediately wants to jump to the question, but aren't there times I don't have to submit? Anyone else have that rebellious heart? Well, let's go ahead and indulge that question because the answer to that is yes. I can think of a couple of times when, in fact, we do not have to submit to and, and obey the authorities that we have over us. The first is this. You don't have to submit to authority if it's not your authority. Some of you are parents, and you are an authority in your home. But if you come to my kids and you tell them, hey, you need to drop out of college and move home, they're going to call me and go, who is that? Right? Well, why are they telling me this? Because you don't have that authority in their life. You're not their parent. If the governor of Mississippi issues orders for the people of Minnesota, we, we don't have to listen to that. Right? That's not our proper authority. If the boss at your workplace comes to me and tells me where I can and cannot park here at Friendship Church, again, I'm going to look at him kind of funny. Because that's not the proper authority to tell me where I can and cannot park here. We don't have to pay attention and submit to authority if it's not our proper authority. You notice in chapter 3, verse 1, wives are told to submit to their own husbands. Not every husband. That's ridiculous. Right? To their husbands. Because we're a people who are to submit to our proper authority. Second, you don't have to submit to authority if they're telling you to do something that contradicts the commands of God. You don't have to submit to authority if they are telling you to do something that contradicts the commands of God. Exodus chapter 1. The Hebrew midwives are told by their authority, Pharaoh, when you give, help a, a woman give birth to a baby, kill it. And the Hebrew midwives say, no. They disobey because they recognize God says, 
Don't murder. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told that they have to bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar and worship that image. And they say, no, we will not because they recognize God says, you are to worship me and me alone. Acts chapter 5, the disciples are told by the authority in their life, the Sanhedrin, you need to stop preaching about Jesus. And they say, no, Jesus told us to make disciples, be his witnesses, shine his light to spread the gospel. We're going to obey him, not you. And we do not need to submit to the authority in our life if they give us commands that directly contradict the commands of God. I think that if I make it to retirement age, if I live that long and if the Lord tarries, that we will, I'm going to guess, see a day, and notice the word guess, right? This isn't one of those crazy prophecies that have been going around recently, right? A guess that by the time I hit retirement age, that we will experience some form of government mandate about not teaching certain parts of this book. And if that happens, we're going to continue to teach the full counsel of the Word of God because that is what God has told us to do. It is distinctly possible that we're going to be approached at some point in the next 20 years and be told, if you continue to teach all that is in this book, then you are going to lose your tax-exempt status. To which we'll say, great, take it. We don't give to God because of tax exemption. We give to God because we love him and because we want his work to go forward. And we're going to obey God, not you, in these particular situations. Because God says, if human authority gives you a commandment and I give you a commandment, go with me. Go with me in these situations. But we need to be very, very careful if we are going to disobey the human authorities that have been put in our lives and say it's because we're being obedient to God, we need to be very, very careful about that. Why? Because I have a heart that is bent on rebellion. And I live among a people who are rebellious, who say, don't give in to the man. And because of that rebellion that surrounds us, if I'm going to disobey human authorities, I better be very sure, having dug into the scriptures, having made a very strong case for what I am going to be doing, having, as the scripture contends again and again, consulted with wise and biblical counsel in order to make sure that I am right in what I am doing. I need to be very careful about this because my heart wants to rebel. My heart wants to rebel against authority. Now, for a minute there, we indulged the exception of when we don't have to listen to human authority. But this passage isn't about the exception, is it? This passage is about the rule. And the believers need to submit to the human authorities that have been put in their lives. And I want to talk about why this is so fundamentally important for us as believers. Why submitting to the human authorities that have been put in our lives is of the utmost importance to us. Why is it so important? Let me give you three reasons. The first is this, because submission to authorities is submission to God. This is so important because submission to authorities is submission to God. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. Verse 15, this is the will of God. Verse 19, be subject to masters because you are mindful of God. 
We don't submit to and honor authorities because they are worthy of submission and honor. We don't even submit to and honor authorities because their office is worthy of submission and honor. The Bible says we submit to and honor authorities because God is worthy of all submission and honor. And we submit to them because we submit to him. We obey them because we are obedient to him, because he is worthy. That's why we submit even to bad authorities, which is what this passage is all about. Even godless and terrible authorities, we submit to them. This passage, Titus chapter 3 that we just read, Romans 13, all tell us, all tell the believers that they are to submit to and honor the emperor. Who is that emperor? We've been through this before. Right? It's Nero, an awful, corrupt, and violent man. We're talking about a man who came to power in an illegitimate way when his mother and others who were on his side overthrew and killed the emperor who was before him. Then once he was emperor, he killed his mother who helped him gain that, that standing. And not only did he kill her, he killed his first wife, he killed his firstborn son. When he was displeased with his second wife, we are told that he stomped her to death. We're talking about a man who encouraged among the Roman Empire the practice of infanticide. If you are frustrated with your kid before they are two, just get rid of them. A man who lied regularly, including blaming the Christians for burning down Rome when perhaps he did it who killed Christians by having them sewn into animal skins and torn apart by wild animals, or dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire. And God says over and over about this man, submit to him. Honor him. The governors in this passage, wicked and perverse and dishonest men. The governors in the scripture are people like Pilate and Felix, who murdered people regularly, who were dishonest, who were perverse, and they represent most of the governors of Rome. Their job, according to verse 14, was to carry out the law that encouraged good and punished those who did wrong. And while they carried out the law, they so often did it within the framework of their own perversity, their, their own violence and dishonesty. When we refuse to submit to human authorities, we are looking God in the face and saying, we refuse to submit to you because God has called us to be people who submit to our human authorities. Not because they're worthy, not because we agree with them, not because they're good enough, but because he is. And we submit to authorities because of him. Jesus teaches this, this principle about submission to bad authorities in a passage we just read in our 90 days through the gospel reading a couple of weeks ago. This passage probably struck you as you were going through Matthew chapter 23 verses 1 through 3. I know it struck me. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. What does Jesus say to his followers here? The Pharisees and the scribes. Those who will, through practices of dishonesty, have me killed. Those who have been a constant thorn in my ministry's side and will be in yours. I want you to do absolutely everything they tell you to do. 
Because they sit in the place of authority on Moses' seat here. He's like, they're a corrupt mess, so don't be like them, but submit to them and do whatever they call you to do. Because to Jesus, it is fundamentally important that we submit to human authority because it is submission to God. Our passage is all about authority that is a mess. The best we see in the passage is the unbelieving husband of chapter 3, but we also see masters who mistreat their workers, emperors and governors who murder Christians. And yet the command here is to submit to them, not because they're worthy, but because God is. And submission to authorities is submission to God. The second reason that this is so fundamentally important for us is this. Because practicing submission is essential to our heart. Practicing submission is essential to our heart. What is the scene in the garden at the beginning of the Bible all about? It is about a choice between rebellion and submission. God says, I'm going to give you this one tree. Everything else, have at it. Do what you will. But this one tree is the area where you can put me first. Show me that you love me, that you honor me, and will submit to me. But Adam and Eve chose rebellion rather than submission. What is salvation about? Salvation is about my disobedient and rebellious heart coming before the Lord, getting on its knees and saying, God, my life is yours. I submit fully to you as my king and my savior. With every decision that we make, we are either growing our hearts towards rebellion or towards submission. And we need to be a people who are constantly growing our hearts towards humility and submission instead of pride and rebellion. That's why in Exodus 20, God says it's so important within the Ten Commandments that children honor and obey their parents. Because within the Ten Commandments, he says, the blessings of the covenant, you living long and being blessed in the land, depend on it. It is the, the commandment that comes with a promise. If this happens, you will live long and be blessed within the land. Why is that? Because living long and being blessed in the land depended on obeying and submitting to God. And God knew that in order for that to happen, children needed to be raised with hearts that instead of growing the muscle of rebellion, grew the muscle of submission. And so he says in Exodus 20, children, you need to honor and obey your parents to grow that muscle of submission because ultimately it's going to determine whether you obey and submit to God and all of my blessings hinge on that. As God's people, our entire lives are built around submission and obedience and we need to exercise that muscle, not the muscle of rebellion. This is particularly important when we recognize what I've called the rule of reflection. What is the rule of reflection? The rule of reflection is that whatever is going on in my relationship toward God here is going to go on in my relationship towards people here. 1 John chapter 2, chapter 4 say, I can't claim I love God here if I'm not loving people here. Jesus says in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, I can't claim to be living in forgiveness with God here if I'm not willing to forgive people here. James 2, I can't claim to be living in mercy with God here if I don't show mercy to people here. 
The rule of reflection, whatever is going on here, is going to be expressed towards people out here. And if I am unwilling to submit to the human authorities in my life, I have to ask the question, have I ever genuinely submitted to God as my king? We have to be a people who practice submission rather than rebellion, who grow the muscles of submission in our lives rather than the muscles of rebellion. It's God's call in our life. Practicing, uh, we, it is so important because practicing submission is essential to our heart. The third and final reason we see in this passage is this. It's so important that we submit to authorities because the gospel is our life focus. Well, why does the wife stay with the unbelieving husband in chapter 3, verse 1? So that he might be one to the Lord. Why do believers submit to and honor bad authorities all around them? Verse 12, right before where we started reading, said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why do we submit to and just continue to return good when we're done evil over and over again by authorities? Because we're a people whose primary motivation in all that we do is the advancement of the gospel. Perhaps there have been times that we have seen over the course of this last year, people who claim the name of Christ and yet whose primary motivation in life is about their rights and wants, not the advancement of the gospel. Particularly in how they approach authority. I am about my rights and my wants rather than the advancement of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I give up all my rights. I give up all my wants. I will become whatever I need to become so that I might win some. Because life for the person who is a follower of Jesus is all about the advancement of the gospel. Jesus is the illustration here. Jesus is the illustration in verses 21 through 25. His rights were so badly violated by terrible and corrupt authority. The garden scene shows he had a very different set of wants. And yet, even though he could have overcome the authority in an instant, he refused and submitted himself to that terrible and corrupt authority for the sake of the gospel going forward, for the sake of the gospel being implemented through his life and his work. And this passage says, if you read it, he is an example to us about how to handle bad and corrupt authority in our lives. That's what Peter is saying here. Jesus is an example to you. You want to love, live, and serve like Jesus? Peter says it's about submitting to corrupt authority, even if it means you suffer under its hand. You do so for the sake of the gospel, because the gospel is always our motivation. We have to ask ourselves over the course of the last year, has our primary motivation and communication when it comes to the authorities around us been about our rights and our wants? Or has it primarily been about whatever would advance the gospel the most in those relationships and with those authorities? We are a people who submit to the human authorities in our lives because the gospel is our life focus. These are just three of the reasons that we submit to the human authorities around us, even to bad, the very worst of authorities, according to this passage. 
There are more, but I don't have time to get into them today. To be honest, the first one is enough. Submission to authorities is submission to God. That is enough for us. Do this for the Lord's sake, it says. And yet, even though this is of fundamental importance, what I see as I look at American society is less and less submission to authority. I see children no longer listening to their parents. Students who won't submit to teachers or coaches. Citizens who won't submit to police or government officials. Employees who won't submit to their boss and actually spend more time ripping on their boss behind their back than showing respect or honor. Not only is this true within America, but in my opinion, there is an unruly weed of rebellion that has grown up within the American church in the last few years that has been on full display over the last year. It is on display when people who claim the name of Jesus won't submit to leaders in the home, at work, in church, or in government. Why are people in churches, people who claim the name of Christ, whose relationship is fundamentally based on obedience and submission, why are we seeing so much rebellion to authority in our day? Well, let me give you four reasons that came to my mind, four quick reasons. The first is this, because some people in our churches just aren't followers of Jesus. People go to church for all kinds of different reasons. Some people say a prayer in order to get out of the bad place. And then they go to church semi-regularly in order to make sure that that prayer stays good. Other people go to church so that their kids can get some good morals in their upbringing. But they're not going to church because they are followers of Jesus Christ who have submitted their entire life to him so that he and his word are what govern all of the decisions in their life. That is what we have been seeing in our gospel reading. And so we recognize that sometimes what we see is rebellion rather than obedience because some people just aren't followers of Jesus. And so they don't care if the word governs their decisions. Two, some people just don't know the word of God. Right? We live in a time of record biblical illiteracy within America. A recent survey showed that less than 50% of Americans could name the four Gospels. Within the church, those who regularly attend church, less than 40% say that they read their Bible on their own at least once a week. People don't dig into the Scriptures and know it, and so it isn't a shocker that they wouldn't know that God has called them to submit to authority. Some believers just don't know the Word of God. Third, another reason for rebellion, some are simply choosing the idol of self over Jesus. The idol of their wants. I want these things, authorities telling me these things, but I'm going to choose my wants rather than what authority is saying. In this clash of wills, I'm going with me. I had a guy a few weeks ago who attends a church north of the river. Ugh, north of the river. Uh, say to me, why, don't, why doesn't your church just? And then he named two or three ways 
that we could go against the orders that we have been given. Why don't you just do this, this, and this? He said, I think it would be more popular and you would draw more people. I have no doubt that he is right. That it would be more popular and that we would draw more people. I also think that the day that we begin to make decisions based on what's most popular and what draws the most people, rather than on what's obedient to Jesus and what is obedient to his word, that's the day we should shut the doors because we are no longer a Christian church at that point. We, we recognize there's some rebellion because people are choosing the idol of self over Jesus. And finally, there is rebellion going on because some are choosing the idol of politics over Jesus. Some people are refusing to submit to God and his word because they value their political allegiances and philosophy over Jesus and the word of God. We see the idol of politics take root when people pray and pray and pray like crazy for election results to go their way. And then when we ask them the last time that they prayed for their neighbor that doesn't know Jesus or their coworker that doesn't know Jesus, they can't remember the last time. But that's a sign that an idol sits on the throne. We see the idol of politics take root when people are so devastated by election results that they clearly have put their hope in the kingdom of man rather than the kingdom of God. We see the idol of politics take root when people talk and post and talk and post about how terrible certain human authorities are far more than they do about how great Jesus is. If you're talking and posting and talking and posting about how terrible certain decisions are by human authorities more than you are about how great Jesus is, then there is an idol on the throne. How much time do we see in the Gospels Jesus spend advocating for any of the five major political parties in Israel in his day? Or advocating against any of those five major political parties? We even see people try and draw Jesus into it, don't we? In John chapter 6, we're going to make you king by force, they say. Jesus says, no, I'm not playing this game. I'm not getting involved in your silly human power games. Because Jesus wasn't about politics and human power games. He was all about the gospel and the kingdom of God. How much time do we see Peter, John, Paul, and the authors of our New Testament spend talking about the politics, the very complex, messy politics of their day. We're talking about a people who not only were living in a state of taxation without representation, but were living as slaves within a highly corrupt empire. And how much time do they devote to saying, hey, you should think about this in terms of your politics or this in terms of your politics. Can you come up with times? Why? why? Why don't they address it? Why don't they deal with it more? Why isn't it more important to them? Because they don't want to waste their influence and their words on the kingdoms of men. They have been called to the gospel and to the kingdom of God where genuine transformation, where genuine change can take place. And they're not about to waste their influence on lesser things. God calls us as his people to be laser-focused on the kingdom, on the gospel, and not to get caught up in these lesser things. Now, does that mean there shouldn't be Christians in politics? No, that's not what it means. There should be Christians in politics. 
And we should vote and we should be active, but we should not get so caught up into politics that it becomes an idol in our life where our political philosophy and ideology winds up governing our decisions more than Jesus and his word. That's an idol in our lives. We should never allow that to happen. We are Christians. God calls us to be people whose hearts are humble, obedient, and submissive. And so why do we live in a world in which there are so many people who attend church who are willfully disobeying the authorities in their life? Some are even calling, some who lead churches and are a part of churches, are even calling obedience to authorities evil and disobedience to authorities good. Right? Some are even calling obedience evil and disobedience good. Can you imagine a church world like that? We're so worried about the world. Oh, the world, it's going to call evil good and good evil. It's happening right here in the American church where we are calling what God calls good evil and what God calls evil good. Why? What do we do? When I look in my own heart and I see the rebellion that has been present in my own heart for the last few months, when we see the rebellion that has been present in the American church, what do we do? Right? We repent. Right? We, we repent. We get on our knees before God and we confess our sins and we repent before him. Repent of pride and selfishness and rebellion and recognize his call to submission and obedience in our lives. There's a verse, I think, that can help us with this. It's a pretty familiar verse. 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Are you familiar with this verse? If my people, who are called by my name, who is that in the context of 2 Chronicles? That's Israel. In 2 Chronicles, Israel is God's people called by his name. As a matter of fact, look at verse 15. It says the prayers that are offered here are to be offered in the temple in Jerusalem. That's how specific this is. If Israel will simply humble themselves and pray and seek God and confess their sin and repent, then what will God do? He'll hear from heaven and he'll forgive them of their sins and he will restore his covenant blessings to them. Right? God had a covenant with Israel that was about their land. A large part of the Old Testament covenant is about a promised land. And he says, if you rebel against me, I'm going to withdraw the blessings from that land. But if you'll repent, if you'll submit, then I will restore the blessings to that land. He says, I'll restore those covenant blessings. Now, unfortunately, if you've been on social media at all, you have seen that it's popular to take this verse, rip it out of its context, and apply it to America. Right? But, but you guys are Bible people, and you can see immediately what is wrong with that, right? What are the first few words? If my people who are called by my name, is that America? 
No, who, who is it in this context? It's Israel. And today, who are God's people called by his name? We just saw in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that's the church. Peter's just gone out of his way to use four Old Testament phrases in verses 9 and 10 about Israel as God's people, and he is saying to them, hey, that's now you, the church. You're God's people, called by God's name. This isn't a verse that we can take and apply to America. This is a verse about God's people, the church, and the repentance needed within us. And if the church will repent, if the church will seek God, if we will confess our sins and our rebellion and turn, what will God do? He'll forgive our sins. And will he bless our land? No. Because God has not made any covenant of blessings and cursings related to land with the church. Right? That is an Old Testament covenant that he has made. Right? I will bless your land or curse your land based on your relationship with me. That was God's covenant with Israel. But there is no country today that has a land covenant with God. America is not God's people with a land covenant. China's not God's people with a land covenant. Brazil is not God's people with a land covenant. And so what should we understand from this passage? Right? We understand the big principle here. As we read any of the blessings to Israel and promises to Israel in the Old Testament, that if we, God's people today, called by God's name, will humble ourselves, if we will repent, God will restore covenant blessings to us. What are those covenant blessings that he has promised to his church? He has not promised us a fruitful land, but he has promised us fruitful community in which love and joy and peace reign and rule among us. If we will repent, if we will confess our sins and turn to him, he will restore the fruitful promises that he has made to his church, the covenant blessings of the fruit of God's spirit in our relationships. If we don't, we should expect the church to be characterized by the opposite. Instead of love and joy and peace, we should expect the church to be characterized by selfishness, discouragement, and anxiety. Anybody heard of any of those things going on within the church? Selfishness, discouragement, and anxiety. But God says, if you will repent, if you will turn to me, if you will seek me, I'll restore the covenant blessings that I've made with you of relationships filled with love and joy and peace. Not only has God promised us fruitful relationships with each other, but if we will seek after him and be the people he's called us to be, he's promised us a fruitful harvest. John 17, if you will love and be united, people will believe that the Father sent me. Matthew 5, 16, if, if you'll shine the light of your love, people will see it and they'll give God the glory. He says, if you will repent, if you will turn, if you will seek after me, I'll restore the covenant of fruitful ministry and revival. God hasn't promised us fruitful land. That's not a part of the covenant he's made with the church. But he's promised us fruitful harvest if we're a people who repent and seek after him. It, it is not shocking 
that every major revival that has ever taken place in America has started in the church with times of confession, repentance, and prayer. Study them. Every major revival that's ever taken place in America has started within the church with times of confession, repentance, and prayer. Because God says, if you'll repent, if you'll confess, if you'll turn, I'll make you a fruitful people. I want to invite you to a time of silent confession right now. If you guys would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And I feel called because of the rebellion that I recognize in my own heart over the previous months um, as a sign of my repentance to just get on my knees before the Lord. And if, if God calls you to that, then I'd encourage you to get on your knees before the Lord as a symbol of your repentance before Him. And I'd invite you to think through the following and spend time with God on the following. Would you confess any sin of rebelliousness and disobedience before the Lord? If there is any sin in you of rebelliousness, of disobedience, of pride, would you confess that before the Lord? Would you repent of that rebellion? Ask God for a heart of submission and humility. Would you confess any sin of treating people with dishonor and disrespect? Come before the Lord and any way that you have treated people with dishonor or disrespect, would you confess that and repent of that? Would you confess any idolatry that has gone on within your heart? Idolatry of self, idolatry of politics, Whatever that idolatry is, would you confess it before God and repent of that? God, you are on the throne. You and you alone. If you see any other wicked way within you, any other hint of rebellion, any other sort of disobedience, Confess it now before the Lord. Repent of that sin. As we spend time recognizing our sin and our rebellion before God, I also want us to recognize the forgiveness that is possible because of what he has done on our behalf. We don't have to stay in disobedience. Yesterday's rebellion does not need to keep us from walking in right relationship with the Lord today.
chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Perhaps you have been strained in rebelliousness. You are that sheep that has gone astray. As we confess our sin before the Lord today, as we turn, Jesus says, you can be healed, cleansed. Peter says in Acts 3, your sins will be wiped away entirely. I want you to recognize that forgiveness that is possible through Jesus Christ. And for those who have joined me on your knees, if you're able, uh, would you stand back up in recognition of God's forgiveness of your sins? And we are going to participate in the Lord's Supper together as we remember what Jesus has done in order to make our forgiveness possible. If you take the elements out at this time and take the bread, the bread represents Jesus' body that has been given for us because of what he has done, our rebellion and disobedience has been forgiven. And we can live in newness of life in him. Let me encourage you to take the bread. Follower of Jesus Christ, eat this bread in remembrance and full submission to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now if you would take the cup that represents Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins, would you take the cup and fully recognizing that Jesus wipes away the sins of those who confess, who repent, who come to him, would you drink this all in remembrance and full submission to Jesus Christ? Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that is possible, that you have taken my rebel heart, years of disobedience, and forgiven it through what Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God, now we worship you and exalt you and lift you up and continue to declare our hearts are fully submitted to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and let's declare our full submission to Jesus Christ together.